We interrupt this program to bring you the utility players classified results. Arsenal 1, Manchester United 0. Heart of Midlothian 2, Hibernian 1. Scotland Rugby 14, Wales 10. Edinburgh Rugby 6, Clanethley Scarlets 3. Tennessee Titans 20, Cincinnati Bengals 31. Hello, we are the Utility Players, I'm Ali, and I'm Rory, and welcome to our world of sport. Well, I went into Sunday night thinking we had a chance for the full house, Rory, in a game that the Tennessee Titans should have won and were the best team and uh, were expected to win in a very Titans way, just made a massive goose egg and completely let the side down. Could have gone first time with a full house, but no, the Titans had to bottle it for all of us. Well, I, you keep telling me how good the Titans are, Ali, and I was, very, I mean, by, by Sunday evening, I was in high spirits, to say the least, given how the weekend of sport had gone. And I thought, well, you tell me how good the, the Titans always are, you know, I banked on them to bring the, the clean sweep home for us, but unfortunately it wasn't to be. Yeah, well, they haven't, they haven't got to the Super Bowl a long time, but they did get to the AFC Championship game last year. And, but, that, but that's it. That's where this team has been the last couple of years. When you don't expect them to win games, when they come up and have to play opposition above their ability, quote-unquote, you know, they step up. If they're playing against teams they're expected to win, they, uh, they just don't seem to be able to, to, to be able to play almost down to the level. I mean, but credit where credit's due, that the Bengals were brilliant. Joe, Joe Burrow, the first overall pick in, in this year's draft um, quarterback for the, the Cincinnati Bengals. Every game you see him play, he is just improving at a rate of knots, and, and he was phenomenal. But yeah, the Titans' defense has, has been awful. It's been, it's been the worst third down defense in the league. And once again, that, that's what killed us. And, um, and they have to fix it quickly. Otherwise, um, this sort of window of Ryan Tannehill at quarterback and my favourite player, Derek Henry, at running back is going to be wasted. Yeah, and it almost feels like the opposite of where Arsenal are at, are at right now. Arsenal have, have been improving under Arteta. We've had a, seen, had a few difficult weeks, but a very good win at the weekend. And it, but it kind of feels with Arsenal, the, the improvement and the change in structure are almost based around building the defence first. So we've obviously brought in Gabriel, we've brought in Thomas Partey, who have kind of strengthened the, the spine of the team. And Arsenal defence has been is, is, is the best in the league so far this year. And that's, that's, a big, that's a big thing to say, given that they've played Liverpool, Man City, Leicester, and now Manchester United. And, it, and it's, is it going to be back to the days of 1-0 to the Arsenal as we were singing, singing on Sunday after they beat Man U? Well, I think the missing piece from what that is, is Rob Holding. I mean, Rob Holding is, is a very good central defender. And it's his fitness that's let him down. And if he, if he could stay fit and have a run in the team, I think more than anything, that allows Arteta to play this 4-3-3 he wants to play. Because without him, you've got to play David Luiz, who much is better in the back five, or, or Mustafi, who's, you know, I think is a solid player, but certainly, you know, doesn't set the world alight. But that combination of, of uh, Gabriel and Holding, I think is actually 
what, what's going to make it work. So I, I, I think it was brilliant. The structure they played with, they controlled that game. I, I did worry getting into halftime that we dominated the first half. And as Arsenal have had to do in the last couple of years, if they didn't score two in that sort of 20 to 30 minute period, they dominated, they tend to drop points. But I, think, I thought it was brilliant. I thought United were pretty poor. You know, they're, they're certainly their league form is not matching their European form at the moment. And, and Oli's got a job on his hands. Yeah, for sure. And also a massive shout out to Mohamed El Nene. I know we, we were joking uh, not long ago, Ali, that when you play football manager, as people know us know we love to do, on the most recent game, Mohamed El Nene comes back from loan, an absolute wizard, and just comes back like amazing and so much better than anyone remembering being in real life. But it seems that in real life, he, he's come back a much better player too. And he, and he played brilliantly against Man United and he's, and he's shown over the kind of start of the season that he could actually be a real asset to this Arsenal team. And it's almost like having a new signing in a way, having that extra body to come into the rotation and do a good job in the centre of the park. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's something the Premier League, I think, is guilty of, is giving up very quickly on players. I think we forget what a, what a sort of pace and standard of football the Premier League is compared to most of our other sort of continental leagues. And, um, you know, you see players come and not quite hit the ground running in the Premier League for, you know, from the top six clubs down to clubs all the way through the league. And they're quickly ousted and decided that they're not good enough. And they're, and they're, they're sent back to Spain or Italy or France, Germany, wherever else. And then you see them dominating in the Champions League. You know, I think of Depay, for example, you know, what, what he did at Man United, never quit ground running, suddenly British fans think he's rubbish. Serge Gridabri would be another good example as well, obviously. Arsenal Academy player, had chances in the Arsenal first team and looked all right, looked like he'd come to something, but never really got there. Went on loan, didn't do very well on loan and ended up being shifted off into Europe. And is now doing amazingly well at Bayern Munich, won the Champions League last year, banging in goals for Germany and is arguably one of the leading forwards in Europe at the moment. So it definitely shows that it does just take time to adapt and, and for players to grow. And, and as they develop in their careers, but they may maybe become the players that, they're initially brought into the Premier League four, and obviously you can have a slight difference because he was academy, but you still think maybe a couple of extra years in the Premier League and he could have become a great servant for Arsenal. I think, you know, we as fans and we as British sports lovers need to, need to have more patience. Uh, and, and actually, we forget how good these players are. Uh, another big result for us was for Scotland finally winning in Wales. First time in about uh, 12 years or something that, that Scotland have gone down to Wales and, and won a rugby game. Pinch of salt, certainly not a sold-out Millennium Stadium or, or, or in Cardiff where, um, where the crowd makes such a difference. An empty ground in Clonethley, but, um, but nevertheless, that's the duck off their back. Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me about this game was it wasn't a great game of rugby. Neither of the teams I felt played their best, but how many times over the last few years would we have seen Scotland lose that game? find a way to lose that game where they were probably the better team. They certainly had the better of it for large parts of the first half. They gave away what was a soft try. And, and you just, you, I just expect them to, as usual, find a way to not win it. But actually, it shows, hopefully, a development of the team that they did find a way to get over the line and actually win a close game away from home. Yes, the test will come as we develop and we start playing the games away from home in front of fans again. But it did feel like a big kind of watershed moment for them to find a way to win that game, even if it was slightly different circumstances. Yeah, you're right. We won that game because we made less errors. Mm -hmm. How many yeah. times you watch a game of rugby with Scotland involved where, where the handling errors or just poor discipline is, is ultimately actually what lets them down. And, and for once, we found ourselves on the, on the right side of that. Um, you know, Wales weren't great. 
Um, but Scotland certainly were better and, and just, you know, and they did what they needed to to win. You yeah. know, said the same about what they did with Georgia against Georgia, obviously slightly different. But, you know, this prag, you know, potentially more pragmatic way of getting results, you know, certainly is, is one way to go about it. But the, the main result came on the, later on the, the Saturday with France doing what they needed to do to, to, by winning the game and beating Ireland, but not getting that bonus point try, which uh, led to England winning on, on points difference. Yeah, I mean, one thing before we move on from Scotland, I thought I would like to say, and I don't know if this is being spug, but we obviously had a big conversation about the breakdown a few weeks ago and about how, whether it's a competition or, or, or not anymore. But one thing I think to point out from Scotland is Scotland were brilliant at the breakdown. I think they won maybe seven or eight penalties on Wales' ball from just being really competitive at the breakdown, like one or two players in, but doing their jobs really, really well. And obviously the new, and maybe understanding the new laws a wee bit better than Wales did and forcing Wales to give up a lot of ball in that area. So I think that, that definitely needs to go mentioned. I think Jamie Ritchie and Hamish Watson are one of actually the leading flanker combinations we've got, we've had in a very long time and, and potentially in Europe at the moment. But yeah, the, the, the main event later on, as you mentioned, was it was a bit weird. It was all a bit weird and it, it certainly didn't have the usual gusto as the, as the end of the Six Nations feels like it should have had. It felt a little bit anticlimactic. I don't know if that was the lack of fans. I don't know whether it was because it's been so long since the last full round of games that we felt a bit detached from everything that was going on. But, but it went, when France won and didn't get enough points, it all just kind of felt a bit like, oh, I don't know, you didn't get that big like moment of England being the victors. Again, maybe because they weren't playing that threw things out again as well. But on the rugby, I thought France were brilliant. And I actually think France, uh, although England have won the Six Nations and they did very well to do so, I think France is almost the biggest winners from the Six Nations is how they've improved as a team. They've been absolutely fantastic. And if it wasn't for, the, for Scotland putting on one of the best performances I've seen them have in a very long time and beating them at Murrayfield back in, back in March, they would have done the Grand Slam and would have won the whole thing. And who would have thought we'd be saying that? So I think well done to England did very, very well. And I don't want to put down their achievement at all to win the Six Nations. It's always a great thing. So there's a lots of top teams in there. But I think France, how they've grown through this tournament, how they've developed their young players and how they've shown they can beat all the best teams in the Six Nations and play very, very, very well is a very good sign for that team going forward. Yeah, they've, they've found a discipline to, to complement their flair and their expansive play, um, which... Is is when you get that on a French team, it makes them very, very, very dangerous. Um, and I think having bringing in um, Sean Edwards as defence coach has has brought about a discipline to them as well. I think that was a tremendous signing at the time, and it's certainly showing out to be that way. Although going on to England, I think in terms of world rugby now, I think England are in a very dangerous place for everyone else in that I think they're being underestimated. Yeah. I really do. I think, you know, if you, you think, talk about, you know, you look at what New Zealand did to Australia this weekend, being them 43-5 in Sydney and just dominating them. You can say what you say, we can say what you say about Australian rugby, but certainly in the, in the, in the other games, in the better to slow cut, you know, are much more competitive, but, but they're finding their gear. You know, Ireland at the moment, and for the last number of years, always talked about uh, up there. Now people talk about the French and how they're playing. Wales always seem to have an edge. You know, South Africa are the world champions. And everyone just seems to, whether it's because they dislike English rugby, as we always seem to talk about, are in this really dangerous position for the rest of the world 
they're just not really being spoken about. And they're a very good rugby side. They have a brilliant mix of experience and youth right now. And um, as much as many people dislike his demeanor, Eddie Jones is an excellent rugby coach. So uh, as someone who's enjoying seeing Scotland's rise, you know, likes to see competitive rugby and everything else, but, you know, finds it hard to stomach England being successful, as I always say, probably down to jealousy more than anything else. They're in a really dangerous position where they're probably being underrated and, and underestimated. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think, I think partly because England has a lot of kind of younger players who are coming out through the premiership now who are very, very good players, but maybe aren't, aren't credited yet because they've not, people aren't aware of how good they are or how good they can potentially be on a global scale. And we kind of know the global superstars. But you look across that England team, other than maybe Owen Farrell and Ben Youngs, who actually probably gets underrated as well a lot, given how much he has achieved for that England team. They don't have loads of global superstars across that seed, but they've got a lot of very good players who are very effective. I think Henry Slade's brilliant. I think he's been brilliant for Exeter, and I think he's brilliant for England as well. And I think, I think you're right, and I think that's, they are being under, underestimated at the moment. And I think, actually, they're a side in transition as well. We're seeing lots of sides in transition, which is often the way kind of after a World Cup. But I think they are the ones who, other than France, whose transition is going the smoothest. I think Wales had a very poor championship. They didn't look... They, only won one game which is unheard of for Wales and they're settling into a new coach Ireland did alright the fact that they were favourites to win probably going into the weekend but you feel like at no stage in the, through the championship did they seem really convincing for me they seemed like they were winning games that they maybe shouldn't have done but that's I guess a sign of a good team where England are just are just really clinical and finding a way to do it at the end of the day they're World Cup finalists and Six Nations champions and, and I feel like that's not even been mentioned the fact that they we're only at the World Cup final last year. So it, they are a top, top team. And I think probably behind New Zealand and South Africa, they're, they're, the, they're the third best at the moment. Yeah. And usually if that was the case, it'd be publicised everywhere and there'd be, you know, it'd be, everyone talk about that. But I certainly haven't seen a lot of publicity to say that. And and I think that, that actually puts English rugby in a better position because they can just get their heads down and play and not get distracted by the external noise. And whether, whether it's because there's no fans and everything at the moment, that's playing a part of it. Just uh, sport's different at the moment. But no, I, th- I think watch this space to see where English rugby will, will go and uh, it'd be intriguing to see. Um, Do you think then that England have almost benefited from the fact that the final game of the Six Nations got played 200-odd days after the game before? Because it almost feels like this has been a bit of an afterthought, this round of Six Nations. And if you feel like if they'd won the Six Nations in the same circumstances back in March, there'd have been a much more of a hoo-ha about it because everyone had been engaged in the Six Nations for the, the past seven weeks. It would have been the big climax where now it's almost like gone under the radar. The fact that England have won the Six Nations is almost better for the team's development long-term. Oh, 100%. I mean, I, I, I speak to someone over the weekend who taught who isn't a huge rugby follower, but thought that this round of games was the first round of the next championship. <laughs> you know, they hadn't even appreciated that, that, that this was... You know, you add to the fact, you know, that Scotland played Georgia last week, England didn't even play because the Barbarians, you know, France and Wales played each other. There was just, it's just kind of like a case of everyone's enjoying that sport's back without the same, same kind of pattern. You know, football's different because we, we, the Premier League's not up and running, the Champions League, Scottish Premier League, etc. Whereas... With rugby, you know, even though the top 14 in, um, in the Pro 14 and, and, and the Premiership in England have come back up and running, it's not had the same traction and following, certainly up here in Scotland. And so they're almost, I think, a couple of months behind where football is, in that we had the Champions League final, the Europa League final, and the culmination of the Premier League, etc., a number of months ago now. 
and went to the next season. We only just had Exeter winning the double in the last three weeks, two weeks. We only just had the end of the Six Nations this week. So a couple of months down the line, a couple of weeks down the line, this is a different conversation. You know, I haven't even mentioned, you know, Edinburgh and the Scarlets played. We, we haven't even really touched about on, on, on the club rugby that's going underneath because I think it is just that little bit behind where, where football is. But another sport that, that's catching up is, is boxing. And we saw a big uh, fight this weekend between Ozak and Chisora, where Ozak beat Chisora on points, which for British boxing fans has a massive knock-on effect because Ozak now is, um, is basically saying, Joshua... I've got a mandatory fight against you. It's time you fight me or you hand the belt over and you relinquish it. I'm not waiting for you to fight Fury. Um, and us as British boxing fans think, oh, it's a shoe-in, it's definitely happening. You know, you've just got to fight in December. He's got to get past first, but out of the way, that once that's out of the way, then it's on to Fury. But, but it might not be as smooth as that. And to be fair, I think oh, that's got a, a, fair, a fair claim. I mean, it certainly sounds like he's got a claim, or at least he thinks he's got a claim. My initial thought, not following boxing as closely as I follow other sports is that the thing is with boxing is that the promoters are so important and the promoters are such a big part in making fights happen. You know that Eddie Hearn obviously represents Joshua and Frank Warren who, who represents Fury are both very, very keen to make this fight happen. I think Eddie Hearn's got his eyes on the Tottenham Hotton Stadium to kind of give that the kind of boxing debut it deserves because I think that's going to be a, a venue for big boxing fights in the future because it's such a fantastic stadium. And I think they're both very keen to make this all Britain unification belt happen. And and the power of the promoter, I think, will will make that happen. I don't think either of them are interested. Well, certainly Joshua's probably not interested in this in this other fight against Ozik. But I guess unless the, the boxing kind of board and the federations come in and say, no, this is this is the, the title challenger, this is who you have to fight, then I, I can't see it going going anywhere other than Fury versus fights Joshua. Now, maybe I'm saying with my heart rather than my head because I'd absolutely love to see that. But that's certainly how it feels to me at the moment. That's what promoters want. And, and the, the, these guys are smart. They'll, they'll hopefully find a way to make it happen. I, something I've never got my head around. There, there seems to be about four heavyweight belts. You know, mm-hmm. you know there's, there's the WHO and there's the you know, WBI or, you know, whatever. And it's just... It, and the, you always talk about the unification fights between the, the classes and the divisions and stuff like that. But then all of a sudden you just have, well, he wants to fight him. You know, I can't think of any other sport where if someone was entitled, you know, gets to a, a semi-final or a final, is entitled to play some, fight someone or bout someone or, or, or play against them, that that wouldn't, that wouldn't be the case. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to speak to boxing fans out with the UK. You know, and is this fury... Joshua fight, just a, a a British superstar fight that the Brits want to see, and you know, or is it a global thing? You know, are, are boxing fans in the states, are, are boxing fans in in the Middle East, are boxing fans in the you know Southern Hemisphere, are they having the same sort of desire? And if they are, you know, then that's a different conversation. But ultimately, you know, if this if Joshua had been asking to say fight an American to because it was his right to. And there was and this American boxer had another American boxer they wanted to see it. It was this big, you know, build up and stuff like that from American fans and promoters, etc. I would argue that us British boxing fans would be going, that's ridiculous. How can they have a monopoly over saying that? Joshua has earned his right. Fury's earned his right. You know, Lennox Lewis has earned the right to have this fight. How can they just push them to one side? And I wonder if we're just, you know, 
Joshua and Fury are certainly some of the biggest names, but there's lots of big names in, in heavyweight boxing at the moment. It's, it's, a, it's a time in heavyweight boxing um, where it's, you know, the top echelon is, is filled with uh, superstars. So are we being a bit naive here in Britain to think that this is the fight that, that all boxing fans want? Possibly. I think it's certainly might be slightly British-centric, but I think you've got to look at, actually look at it and look at the stats and look at what these two have achieved. These two are the current leading belt holders in heavyweight boxing. Fury's got two belts, Josh, two WBC belts. Joshua's got four belts, the IBF, the IBO, the WBA, and the WBO. Like, this is the two best, the two, the two leaders of the division coming against each other to unify basically all the belts that have existed in the division. So it's not a case of... The fact that they're British, obviously, for us, increases the stakes massively, but it's actually kind of irrelevant if these two weren't superstitious, they'd still be wanting to fight each other because they are the belt holders. They are the, currently the leaders of the heavyweight division. This is like, like Bayern Munich and Barcelona clashing because they're the top two teams in Europe. Obviously, Barcelona aren't at the time, aren't right now and stuff. So that wasn't like a permanent example for the moment. But it is, it is that sort of case of the two leaders in the heavyweight division in terms of titles. And that, and that isn't subjective. In terms of titles, they have the most. And it is basically a battle to unify all the belts so it is actually what, what the top of the division needs. And it's what people, I would believe, would be calling out for all around the world because they, they are the two leaders in the sport and they have never fought each other. Yes, okay, Ozik, Ozik might be the challenger to get, get a belt. And obviously he wants the fight because he wants to win the belt and he doesn't want to rid Joshua losing it because then I don't know how that would work about him keeping, keeping his right. I'm guessing he'd keep his right, but he'd fight Fury instead. But... I think that this is this is the fight that, in my head, everyone wants to see because it's the two title holders coming together to to unify all the belts effectively. No, I mean you're right, and and, uh, and let's not forget that Joshua's got to fight Pulev in in December, and and what knock on effect that's going to have. But yeah, I mean you want the best coming across the best, and if that is the case, then maybe Uzek has to to stand out the stand out the way and. And wait his turn, but but a decision needs to be made soon. We, you know, it's something that's been talked about for, for months now, um, and uh, and all boxing fans out there want to know want to know what's going to happen, um, and it'll be really really intriguing to see. Ali, I'm I'm really upset that you've made me wait this long into the episode to celebrate the mighty Jam Tarts, the mighty heart of Midlothian, seeing off their their greatest closest rivals in the semi final of the Scottish Cup. One division below, but winning 2-1, our boy Liam Boyce. Scoring the winning penalty and putting them through to a final. I, I thought we'd be talking about the top of the programme, but you've been torturing me the whole time as I'm, as I'm sitting here smugly celebrating Hearts' amazing win at the weekend. Yeah, well, it was a tale of two non-penalties being given as penalties, I think <laughs> is, is safe to say. And, and Boyce, who kept his composure more, more so. And yeah, it just shows that the derbies ultimately uh, mean more than, than anything else. I mean, obviously, Hearts have been had a good start in the championship, but certainly come, we're coming into that game with a lot less, you know, football in their legs. Hibs have been playing very well this year. Um, Hibs have been in outstanding form, but it, it ultimately doesn't matter when it comes down to derbies. And, um, and as ever, my Twitter timeline was filled with Hearts and Hibs fans jousting at each other and things. And, and uh, the boys in Maroon came out on top. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And I th- but I think, though, that I totally get what you're saying, and derbies are a totally different affair. And it almost feels like 
Hearts are so happy that they won this, not because they've got into the Scottish Cup final, but because because they've beaten Hibs in the division above and it gives them that satisfaction. But at the same time, I actually think that Robin, or what Hearts as a club have done a brilliant job over the past few months. I think getting Robin Nielsen in was really, was really smart business. I think it's a, it's a shame that Daniel Steidl had to go because he was doing good things at the club, but I think it's really smart business getting back in, someone who knows the championship so well and has so much success in. But I think the squad that they've managed to build at a club, I think is a, is, is a top, top squad. I think it's probably the best hot squad I've seen for a few years. I think they've done really smart business bringing in kind of experienced players who maybe got a bit lost but are still very talented players. I think talking about Andy Halliday coming into the middle of the park as a top experienced footballer. Stephen Kingsley at fullback. He was, again, a fantastic footballer who had gone astray. I think the fact they've got Liam Boyce up front who's played how many times in Northern Ireland and is such an experienced veteran of the game shows the kind of quality that actually exists in this Hearts team. I think there's a lot of quality. The fact they've managed to keep Michael Smith at fullback who's, again, a, a top international footballer. I think you look across the team, this isn't just a championship team that have, that have come and done well and, and won a, a game as a plucky underdog. So I think this is a top, top team. And I reckon if Hearts had built this team in the SPL this year, they would have done all right. Like They would have been a top six side competing with the Hibses and the Aberdeens to be the, the next best after Rangers and Celtic. And I think if they can go out, make a kind of breeze of the championship this year, maybe have a, have a run in, in next year's Scottish Cup and, and get promoted and, and they'll be and, and keep the core of this current squad. They'll be in a very good place coming into the SPL next year. Because I think it, it's certainly not a check. Looking at the quality and the kind of international and high-level experience that exists along that squad, I mean, Andy Halliday's played in, in the Europa League for Rangers. And I think you look at that and you think, this is a good team. And they'll actually, when they do hopefully get into the SPL next year, I can have a right crack at it. What is what is so weird about the Andy Halliday thing is that he was knocked out of the competition by Hearts. I know it's so <laughs> yeah, bizarre. He knocked out the competition by Hearts, and and it's going now. It's going to the final with them. And you know, I've been thinking about over the weekend about almost the, the ethics of that, uh, and you know, you know, should that be allowed? But but ultimately, uh, it has to be because Hearts had have lost so many players. Um, they've obviously recruited really well, but they've lost so many players that if you with with the transition and changing of squads and personnel, if you said that you had to have only players who played in last year's competition, then you know you struggle to make potentially get teams out. Um, so 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 it seems fair, but it do, it does seem a nice little wrinkle to the effect, especially if Hearts going up Celtic in the final. Andy Halliday as as a, <laughs> as, a as a previous juror, I think would would uh, would certainly have a, an extra smile in his face, and and you could argue that if if Hearts were to go and win, that they ultimately might be their best ever Scottish Cup victory, not just because of everything else that's gone around it, but in the quarterfinal, semi-final and final, beating Rangers, Hibs and Celtic, their their three biggest rivals. Yeah, for sure. I think it's certainly I mean, certainly with like the getting demoted to the championship would be one of the most famous wins for the club. I don't think for the, the personal effect, the five one against Hibs will ever get topped because there's nothing better than beating your, your biggest rivals five one in a final. But no, I think Certainly, it would be fantastic. And look, obviously, Celtic looked very good against Aberdeen. There's a lot on it for them, trying to get the quadruple treble, which some, which would be an amazing achievement. And I, and I can't see past Celtic winning it when it comes to it. But they're in there. They've got a chance. They've got a good team. And, and if they were to win it, it'd be such an amazing story. So we'll keep our fingers crossed for the 20th of December. But I think something we've got to mention, and you talked about Andy Halliday, 
coming up against his rivals. What about Craig Gordon coming up against his former club that he started the competition in? Obviously, he wouldn't have got lots of game time at Celtic, but he started the competition as a Celtic player and is, is shooing to start the final as a Hearts player, which is bizarre in its own in its own right. And I think we also got mentioned to him, it's come out this morning that he is in line to be called up to the Scotland squad that's getting announced today as we record on the Tuesday. Obviously, it'll, it'll, come, it'll come out by the time the episode is released, so we'll see what happens there. But if he's recorded to that Scotland squad, I think that's an amazing story. Two years since he was last in the squads, 37 he is now in the back end of his career and still, as we saw from his performance at the weekend, how good he still is and still good enough to play international football and be in that squad. Yeah, David Marsh will probably start the games, but I think it's fantastic that he's still able to get into that squad at this age. Yeah, and, and goalkeepers are like that, aren't they? It's, it's one of these things where maybe because he's played less football over the last number of years that ultimately he's prolonged his career a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not a huge wear and tear on, on, on goalkeepers' bodies in, in the same way there is other athletes. But, you know, to stay that mentally switched on, that mentally driven, that flexible, uh, keep your reflexes, I think is, is, is a credit. And, you know, for so long, he was the most expensive British goalkeeper ever. You know, that transfer fee of nine million, um, you know, which, which set up hearts essentially for, for, for a number of years. And um, you know, that's obviously been surpassed now with likes of Ramsdale, et cetera, and, and the money we see down south. But I think he's ultimately one of, one of Scotland's most underrated footballers. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that save was basically the reason hearts managed to win the game, that unbelievable save. Otherwise, it would have been 2 1 at the end of normal time and Hibbs would have been going through. And I think he showed in, the, in his first few games back in Hearts the quality he still has. And he's still a brilliant, really goalkeeper. And, and he's reminded everyone in the SBI why we fell in love with him in, in, to start with. And certainly Hearts fans are delighted to see him back at the club and the club that obviously means so much to him as well as he's starting his career. As ever, there's a number of other things going on in sport. So here is this week's roundup of what's been happening. The Utility Players Weekly Roundup. In hockey, round two of the Pro Hockey League has just come to an end with Britain's men still struggling at the bottom of the table, whilst Britain's women, after beating Belgium, currently sit fourth. In football, Wales' international team faced unrest going into their upcoming camp ahead of the forthcoming internationals, as manager Ryan Giggs has been arrested due to allegations of assault. We'll see more news on this as it comes out, and we'll see how it affects the Welsh team going forward. In golf, the Houston Open takes place this week. Uh, the last event before going into the 2020 Masters, being held in November for the first time. A strong field sees Dustin Johnson, Brooks Kepler, Terrell Hatton and Hideki Mashiana doing their final preparations before going to Augusta. And in the IPL, the Mumbai Indians still sit top of the pile with 9 wins from 13. And we'll see if they can extend that lead against the Sunrisers Hyderabad in their next fixture. This week, we're very pleased to be joined by Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Federation of International Cricket Association, FICA, uh, Tom Moffat. Uh, FICA is the global body that represents players uh, around the world in the world of cricket, both men and women. Uh, Tom is a, a former cricketer himself, having played in South Australia for the Redbacks uh, many years ago. And Tom, thank you very much for, for giving up some time and, and chatting to us. Thanks, guys. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, no, so as I mentioned there, Tom, um, you know, FICA's role really is, is to represent the global needs of, of, of players around the world as a collective. And for a lot of people, there's a lot of hard work and time going into representing the players that doesn't necessarily make it into the public domain. 
Um, do you want to sort of just give us a, a, a quick insight into kind of the, the, the general workings of FICA and the sort of areas that you find yourself um, representing the players in most? Sure. So, look, FICA um, started in the late 90s. Uh, it was the product of a collaboration between the English Players Association, the PCA, and the Australian Players Association, the ACA. And those two associations really got together at that time under the leadership of, um, of Tim May in Australia and, and various others. And the, the purpose of getting together was there's a lot of decisions being made that affect players at global level um, at the time by the ICC, the International Cricket Council and other, other stakeholders as well. And, and the players didn't really have a voice or a say in, um, in those decisions which were being made that impacted them and their careers and, and the structure of the game that they love. So the, really FICA was established to make sure that players have a voice at the global table um, and in, in the global corridors of power as well. Since that time, it's really evolved um, into a, a bigger organisation and, and more players associations have evolved and developed in, in countries around the world at domestic level um, to represent players in their own countries. And they've in turn become part of FICA and our global our global collective as well. So at the moment, we have nine players associations who are part of the FICA group. And look, really, our role is, it's in three spaces, really. It's about players and representing players um, in the decisions that affect them at global level and including those that are made by the ICC. We're also about players associations and making sure that we're assisting new players associations to develop and grow around the world um, and and that the existing players associations strengthen and, and develop and evolve. And the third element is really about the game. We, on behalf of players, we care about the global game and, um, and how it's structured and, and the success of the global game is really important, obviously, to players um, and fans alike and making sure that, that we're positively contributing to the direction of the game, um, whether that's in things like scheduling um, structure of the game and how it's put together and making sure that the players have a voice in, um, in, in the direction of travel for the game as well. Yeah, I, I, it fascinates me there to say that it came about on the back of the fact that the players didn't have a voice. Uh, you know, I think if you spoke to most of the public, they feel, you know, you look at sports, certainly like, like football or American football or whatever else, where, you know, players seem to be using their own personal image or, 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 or success as leverage to sort of, have player power to move out from clubs to make moves and transfers and what have you. Um, but there, but it sounds like there's a whole under, under, underbody of work going on. And is this something that's seen across the world in, in other sports? And do you sort of talk to other sports about the sort of how the players movement works in, in those domains? Yeah, we, we do, Ali. I think we, um, we're as FICA and as a global collective in cricket, we're also part of the world players association group, which is basically the umbrella umbrella on top of us they um that group's comprised of pretty much all the the established players associations around the world so be it from the north american unions all the football unions you guys call it football we call it soccer in australia rugby etc so all, all of the organized players associations around the world are part of that body and there's a lot of information sharing that goes within that group and Look, a lot of the wins that have historically occurred for players, whether it be to do with their ability to move freely between employers and, and, and free agency, whether it be to do with you know, ensuring that players get a fair percentage of revenue that they're helping to generate, um, whether it's to do with 
health and safety, various other important elements of um, of being a professional athlete. A lot of those wins have been on the back of the hard work of players associations and the player movement around the world, and in particular, you know, some some really strong individuals within those associations who have stuck their head above the parapet in sometimes pretty difficult circumstances to to fly the flag for players and make sure that players are, are being treated fairly. You know, the, the landscape that we see today in most um, sophisticated sports is, you know, is very different than where probably where it started in, you know, in some places around the world. And a lot of the, the gains that have been made for players have, um, you know, have been really hard fought. So, yeah, and you say that you work alongside all the other sports, basically, you're certainly committed with all them and you, you share lots of information. And, and how can cricket as a sport then, how has it learned from the other sports that you work with and you share conversations with? Obviously, I feel like certainly you've seen a big development in cricket over the last few years with the rise of like T20 franchises, isn't it? And it's turned players into much more into assets who, as you mentioned, can freely move between franchises and, and earn their money globally. Something that we've maybe seen more in other sports. So is that something you were able to learn from other sports or is there anything in particular that you've learned a lot from, say, soccer or rugby or the American sports that you've been able to bring into cricket? Yeah, good question. I think one of the, probably one of the most tangible ones we, we've probably actually seen this year with, um, with what's happened with COVID-19 and the, you know, that, that umbrella group, which I mentioned, has been together quite a lot this year talking about how how biosecure bubbles are going to be put together around the world and how that's going to look across sports um, and actually the the ability for that group to draw on sort of common expertise to assist with their positions on behalf of players and making sure that players are looked after has been a really important one. You know, and probably another tangible example of, of where we'd look to other sports and other players associations to um, to to assist and to learn from is in in football actually with you know what we've seen in cricket is in recent years a lot of the landscape has shifted towards more domestic leagues and domestic t20 cricket has become a lot more prominent and is you know there are obviously a lot of opportunities for players in that landscape but at the same time that brings with it a, a very different dynamic than what's existed in cricket historically there are more there are more employers in the game they're often from you know from private enterprise and it's you know it's a very different landscape than it once was and it's perhaps shifting more towards a football model in terms of the way that players are employed um, and the way the game's structured around the world. So we've certainly had a lot of conversations with our counterparts in football because we're now, we're now seeing a lot of the same challenges that they've faced. Some of them are good challenges just in terms of, you know, the competition between international cricket and, um, and domestic leagues and, and where it all fits. It's, you know, the game's sport for choice in a way. And it, um, it's you know some of those are more positive challenges for the game to face but some of them are perhaps slightly more negative with um with players not being paid or contracts not being honored um in some of those new leagues as well and that's you know their spaces that we look to them as to how they've dealt with that historically and how they've been able to proactively get ahead of some of those issues and we're looking to implement some of that in cricket as well it's just a shame that you can't you can't do it the other way and you can you can't tell football how to have a good video referral system because that's something cricket's managed to do and football's not been able to do. <laughs> I'll pass it on though. I'll pass it on. <laughs> Thanks. Um, no, I mean, looking at cricket more specifically, I think one thing that's very prominent about international cricket is this. I don't use the word disparity, but the the gap between the very top nations in terms of Australia, India, South Africa 
the kind of established test match playing nations and then the associate nation system like the rising nations we see with Scotland and Papua New Guinea and, and all these nations and for me on outside looking in it'd feel a lot of the decisions that were made on international level would affect all the nations differently and it might be that the players of say Scotland could be affected ne- negatively by a a decision that would affect the players of England positively? And how do you as then the, the governing body manage that situation and ensure that all the players within the whole game are growing from the way that the game's going, even if there's certain ways that might that might affect other nations differently to some? Yeah, it's a good question. And that's you know, that's one of that's always one of the challenges of working for a global organization where we you're right, we represent, you know, players from some of the, you know, the bigger, more established cricket countries and, and England and Australia are two good examples there, um, right through to, you know, more developing cricket countries and associate countries where the challenges are very different for, um, for the game in those countries and for players in each of those countries. At the same time, I think we, you know, our philosophy is really about, um, you know, we exist for players and we, you know, the philosophy of the players' associations around the world and the players' association movement is really it's... Um, you know, we're we're about our global collective and and the collective of players, um, and so our positions will usually be taken with that in mind. It, you know, we'll, we'll always try not to favour, you know, a particular aspect or angle, and it's it's about what's right for the collective of players and and, and the vast majority of those. So, you know, one of the challenges that cricket's got is that, unfortunately, decisions have historically been made by those running the game based on regional interests and. Um, and and perhaps based on self-interest rather than what's best for the global game and the growth of the global game. Um, And that's certainly hindered um, historically probably some of the the development and growth opportunities for some of the smaller and upcoming cricket countries. And that comes down to things like the way the game's money is distributed, financial models and economic models, scheduling um, and the lack of opportunity for some of the smaller countries as well. So we're we're very much in favour of um, of decisions being taken in in the context of of what's best for the global game and not what's best for a particular region or a, or a ge- geographical area. And look, the, the governance model of the game is a challenge in that regard because the ICC, the International Cricket Council, has historically seen itself as a members' organisation, which means you know it, it's been ripe for individual countries to to perhaps go there and represent their own interests rather than coming together under a you know a genuine global governing body that's um, that's that's taking its steers for the global game yeah uh, you, you've mentioned that a number of challenges but just tell you about something you said before about with there being a shift um away to potentially a, a model more like football with, with the emergence of more and more of these franchise type t20 leagues a couple of questions how is this a is this a positive in the game the amount of leagues that are popping up and and what sort of effect do you, do you see it having on, on international cricket as we see, uh, not that we can have fans in the stands at the moment, but as we see around the world, less and less people being drawn to, to watching Test cricket live, there's, there's always conversation about that. Is, is it a positive thing? How, what will international cricket look like? And, and also, what, what is, are the biggest challenges that, that are faced to, to keep international cricket relevant? I look in my view the um I think there are a lot of positives for the game and for players and for fans um that have come out of the you know the evolution and the growth of the domestic leagues landscape and 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 the domestic T20 leagues and clearly you only have to look at some of the more successful leagues to know just how you know just how successful they can be 
And, you know, I think the challenge that the game's got is without, the game doesn't really have a coherent structure in, its, um, in the way it's scheduled from the top down. Um, so what we see is the league's landscape is, you know, in some ways is competing with international cricket and there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of clarity and coherence with the way it's all pieced together at global level. And that's the reason that we think that's an issue is that ultimately if you've got the domestic T20 leagues competing with international cricket in the calendar, you, those two things are competing for the same fans, they're competing for the same commercial dollars and they're competing for the same players. And ultimately, you know, cricket and being a professional player is a, um, is a short term and it's a precarious career path, as you know, and the, you know, players are always going to take decisions that are in the best interests of their family and you know, as anyone would in their career. And that often means perhaps going where there's more job security or where there's more financial incentive. If there is direct competition between international cricket and the leagues, um, you know, one of them is losing out. So what we'd like to see is a structure of the game and a scheduling framework, whether that's scheduling windows or, or another solution along those lines that can actually ensure that international cricket stays strong because that's the history of the game and it's, you know, we know that players value it and so do fans and it's, it's critical that that's retained, but that the, you know, perhaps where the game's evolving to can also be accommodated alongside that in a structure that, you know, where the two can coexist and not compete with one another. Uh, and when it comes to these kind of conversations and it comes to Fika's role in hopefully implementing change and, and, and evolving the sport, how does FICA operate in that sense? And how, do, how does FICA as an organisation allow themselves to create change? So the ICC is, is the governing body, and then we've got all the, the local governing bodies of the nations as well, like the, the ECB, etc. And, and where does FICA, how does FICA kind of communicate and cooperate with these organisations and, and work in a way that they can encourage change from the lawmakers and the governing bodies of the game? So our, our counterpoint and our, our counterpart at global level is, is the ICC, as we've talked about. Um, and there's, you know, they're, they're clearly an organisation that we need to try and influence. Um, and we also have relationships with the governing bodies around the world at domestic level as well, as do our, um, our affiliate players associations. And our role is really to advocate on behalf of the players. So we, we don't necessarily make the decisions. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's a good observation that there's, you know, the governing bodies and, and, and other stakeholders in the game are perhaps in the box seat in terms of actual decision making. And our role is to advocate and to, to try and influence those organisations through, um, you know, ideally we'd, we'd like that to happen in a, um, a really collaborative and proactive and positive way. That doesn't always pan out. And, um, and sometimes we've got to fly the flag and, um, and, you know, and challenge things in a different way for players. And, you know, that often doesn't make us the most popular people in the room. Um, but it's important that we do that because, um, you know, the players make the game so great and we think that they deserve people you know, flying the flag for them and their interests at global level, albeit we don't always get what we want. Um, but, you know, we, we think we take our positions in a way that's, that's really reasonable and fair and hopefully in the best interests of players and the game. How, you know, how receptive are, um, you know, the ICC as the, as the global uh, lawmakers and, and the, and the regional governing bodies, how susceptible are they to, to having conversations with, with the players' movement, whether it be FICA or, or your affiliate members? 
Uh, look, the, the answer is that it varies. Um, and we, you know, I'm in the fortunate position of being able to have a decent amount of oversight on how it looks around the world in different countries and how the relationship between the Players Association and the governing body works um, in different parts of the world. And you know, w- what I would say is that it's where there's lots of engagement and there's an open, honest relationship based on trust and collaboration, it really is a it's set up in a win-win situation and um, and the governing bodies around the world who are in that situation I know value the role of the Players Association and the role that it can play in not only being a sort of a port of call on players player issues but also being a, a body that it can rely on to um, you know, to support them in their endeavour of growing the game um, and also doing that in a way that protects the players so and the, you know that that positive proactive collaborative style relationship exists in some countries. Unfortunately, in other countries, it's, it's been far more combative and, um, you know, there's probably been a much more, a much more tense sort of style relationship. And that's, you know, there's no one size fits all in terms of how it's worked around the world, but that's, um, you know, they're probably two extremes and it's everywhere in between. Um, and from our perspective with the ICC, look, we're, we are engaged with them and, um, and there's dialogue on various issues that's not at the level that we would like it to be and that we think that the players around the world deserve. And we're pushing for that to, um, to continue to evolve into you know, probably a more structured relationship across various, er- various areas that we think can be win-win. But at the moment, it's, you know, there, there's engagement on a, a lot of the issues and it's, it's just a question of pushing that forward. Yeah, moving away back to something you said earlier, you mentioned that with these franchises popping up that more that, that a number of players are, are struggling to to even get paid for this you mentioned about you know the two two pillars that players look for are either sort of stability and employment or, or financial incentives uh, you know we watch a lot of cricket fans watch the IPL they watch the big bash I'm sure they'd have tuned into the 100 if it had gone ahead this year uh, watch the Caribbean Premier League previously but there's a whole raft of other tournaments you know how much of an issue is players getting paid to be part of these tournaments? So you mentioned it earlier. Is it something that's a bit of a, a real issue? It is. And it's, um, it's a growing issue, unfortunately. And it's, it's something that's really grown in parallel with the evolution of the domestic T20 and the domestic leagues landscape. And in our latest survey data, um, in both the men's and the women's game, we know that around, I think it's, 34% of men's and women's players have experienced issues of not being paid or being paid late in domestic leagues. And that's clearly not good enough for the game. It's, um, there are only, you know, there are around 4,000 professional players in the world. And the fact that that significant a percentage of those have experienced issues is, is not good enough. And we think that ultimately the ICC runs a sanctioned cricket framework. So they will, they will tick off and sanction a lot of the events around the world um, or the governing bodies around the world will do the same in their jurisdictions. Um, and we think through those processes, there are, are better ways to protect players than currently exist. And we've pushed for those for quite a long time and we'll continue to do that because we think it's, as with any industry, um, it should be a reasonably straightforward thing that if you sign a contract to, um, to do a job, that you should get paid to, for, for the services that you've provided. Yeah, I mean, while that that seems a a huge, a huge issue in in the game, um, and hopefully one that you can work work out. Another sort of movement that we've seen uh, in sport around the world, but cricket kind of has been a, a lead on. Certainly, you look with the work that sort of the PCA has done in England, close to home. Here is that kind of career transition on what 
sport looks like after playing you know it's a decision that a lot of athletes have to make about sacrifices about how far they can get in the game and then that ultimately sometimes put them in a difficult position afterwards we know there's a lot of good work at ground level and, and some of these you know local uh, players associations i'd imagine that similar at fika um you know what sort of what sort of work is done in that space because a lot of the guests we get on who are current athletes often talk about what life after after sport looks like absolutely and that's I'm glad you mentioned that because of our, you know, most of our players associations do run best in class programs in that space to support their members and to support players, not only during their careers, but coming out and transitioning out. And I think I said earlier that it's professional sport is a short term and it's a precarious career path. It doesn't matter who you are, whether you're player number one or you're player number 400, there's an end point for everyone. And having some support structures around you to assist with your transition out in both in and out of the game is really critical and our associations the the programs that they run are really broad in scope and the the support services that they offer to players uh you know are world leading in lots of ways and they've they've grown exponentially in in recent years as well so and really our role as fika is to I guess, provide support to those associations in the way they're setting up those programs um, and drawing on some of the best practice from around the world to make sure that, that everyone is covering off what they need to. And at the same time, also, we've developed in recent years some, um, some platforms and some tech platforms of our own to assist players, particularly players who are moving around the world more than they ever have before to play and to make sure that they're getting the support that they need through those platforms as well as a as an add-on to the to the programs that are run in um, in domestic land also so you know things like whether it's education whether it's mental health support whether it's you know you name it whether it's whether it's players who have fallen fallen on hard times you know the role of the players association is really to be there to assist those players and um, and we know that our, our member players associations do a fantastic job in that space yeah no I, I said when we speak to a number of our guests they they talk about the importance of, of that work-life balance so um so hopefully player one to player 400 uh, manages to to do what they, he or she needs to do afterwards um talking of of moving on and doing what he or she needs to do afterwards it's time Tom, for you to run the utility players' gauntlet of questions, 45 seconds of random questions to see if we can get to know Tom Moffat a little bit more. Uh, we haven't really found out a huge amount about Tom so far. So are you ready for uh, the gauntlet? I think so, yes. There's no time to run the gauntlet. Batman or Superman? Superman. Was the moon landing real? Yes. Truth or dare? Dare. Jaeger bombs, always a good idea, always a bad idea? Uh, good idea, I'd say. Skiing or beach holiday? Beach, 100%. Pitt or DiCaprio? DiCaprio, better movies. What came first, chicken or the egg? Chicken. Boyzone or Westlife? Uh, Westlife? Best James Bond? Uh, Connery. <laughs> I like how much thought you put into whether Jaeger bombs were a good idea or not. That was a really kind of considered decision. Oh, I, just, I needed to work out how far and wide this is going. <laughs> <laughs> well, when was the last time you had a Jaeger bomb? I may ask a question not to answer for the, another time. Yeah, it's been, it's been a while. 
but as uh, yeah, I um I do recall them being delicious, and there was quite a good period of time where they were um they were front and center of the thinking as well. <laughs> I feel like now that a lot of I mean, it might be different in Australia, but certainly over here that the pubs aren't really open at the moment, and. I feel like you're not going to be having a Jaeger bomb at home. So <laughs> I feel like not many people are enjoying Jaeger bombs right now. No, nah, so I wouldn't have thought that's just sort of standard Friday night sitting on the couch tipple. But no, but we'll say, I guess some, it might be someone's cup of tea, but who knows? The Scots drink a lot, so you never know. <laughs> yeah, true. And the moon landing was real. Are you, are you a doubter or surely not? No, no, just just always intrigued to, to those who uh, who aren't. And if you can explain why they don't think it was. No, that's definitely real from my perspective. <laughs> it is quite odd that there hasn't been a lot of activity up there since then, given it was so long ago. But anyway, I think you're the first person when I've asked Truth or Dare said Dare. So, oh, I just didn't. I didn't want the next question to be some kind of same thing. Where I had to <laughs> well, say the truth. <laughs> well thought out. I like that. Very clever. Well, Tom, thank you very much for your time. Um, really fascinating to sort of hear part of the sporting uh, landscape that isn't talked about a huge amount and and keep working hard on behalf of those players I'm, I'm sure they very much appreciate it and um and hopefully we'll see some real positive change thanks guys thanks for having me on it's been Cheers. awesome Cheers. Uh, fascinating insight there from from tom you know part of sport that probably we don't hear or see a huge amount of you know we see our athletes and players on our screens uh, we think how lucky they are and you know to be doing something they love as a job and, and getting paid most you know most sports we say lots of money to do it but but not always the case yeah for sure it's something i've become increasingly aware of and and, and kind of talking to thomas has highlighted a lot of it is is almost how these players are humans and they are and they are needed to they need to be kind of have people there representing them, making sure they look after, making sure they're getting the fair deal, making sure that the game is evolving in a way that's right for them. And, and they're not just kind of robots that play the game and, and, and without having that kind of human element and human sentiment behind it. And I mean, the fact, the fact that something 34% of players have experienced either not getting paid or played, paid late from being part of a, a franchise tournament or, or any kind of part of cricket is, is mind-baffling to me. I mean, I don't know how you can you, I mean at the end of the day they're doing a job and you get paid for your job and, and, and they signed on those terms and the fact that players wouldn't get paid I think is just I think it's awful and I can't believe that sort of thing exists within the, the professional sporting landscape uh, it's, any other job you think you get paid for your time and, and what you're expected to do and uh, it seems to be these these athletes they know what they're signing up for they know if they underperform we were, we were talking to, to Josh Kerr last week who, who said yeah, he's got three and a half minutes of his life to be at his best. And if he doesn't, then that could be the end, you know? And so these athletes and competitors know what they're signing up for. If they, if they don't do their job, it could be a very short career, but you'd like to, it's amazing to think that even when they do do their job, they don't necessarily get paid for their time. But you know, the, the other fascinating thing is with cricket changing, whether that changes the whole complexity of the way players go about their, their career, um, both men and women's game, is, is it going to be more of a football model where club cricket, professional club cricket, becomes more of a, more of the high profile and international cricket slides into the background like we see in football? Yeah, and I think that's certainly a conversation that's been around for a while. And it seems to be certainly leaning towards that way. But I think it's great to see that FIKA are certainly trying to be so involved in that conversation and and as well as fighting for the the best for the players they're fighting for the what's best for the game which is fantastic to see i think all lovers of the game would think it was be a real shame if 
international cricket was to slide down the spectrum and maybe not be as important as it once was because as, as Tom said that is the history that is where the game came from and that is where the game made a name for itself and it's great to see that they understand that they see that they're working towards kind of keeping the spirit of the game while while creating a model that works best for the players and allows the players to earn the money they've got the right to earn and have the careers that they deserve to have but that, that'll do us this week thank you very much uh, for listening in uh, always a pleasure to spend our time with you and everyone stay safe Thank you.